Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome to episode 77 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David C. Noe, and I'm here in the Vomitorium with Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm feeling a little out of my depth today. Really? Yeah, because the, the, the pool we're swimming in is is, is like your backyard pool. Okay. I, that's what I feel like, right? Is it, uh, like people say, is it above ground, hovering above ground, and or is it underground, it like is, they it, like to say? It's underground. It's got the slide. It's got the diving board. It's got everything. Yeah, I prefer yeah. to say on ground. Uh, oh, oh I see. in ground. Okay. People say, do you have an, an above ground pool or a, 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 yeah, it's not above ground. Well, you've seen those it's big resting. ones. It's, it's resting. It's resting on the, it's not like hovering. Correct. Is that the problem? An above ground <laughs> pool. <laughs> yes. Um, this, so anyway. I, it's an in, in-ground in pool. Are you okay with that? In-ground pool. In-ground pool. In-ground <laughs> pool. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. Okay. So the, no, so that's that's the metaphor I'm using. You, Got it. You hang out by this. You tan. You swim. But I've never been really been here. <laughs> Do I have one of those little foam uh, things to hold my cold drink? Oh, without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. Right. So yeah, you're, you're, yeah, but you're, you're seeing it. You're, yep. you're a man of uh, you know of, of many hats. It's right? true, but you know once you get past um, you know. 1200 or so right. I, I'm, I get a little bit lost okay so, but, all right yeah. it's like me with pop culture all your references of synchronicity and sting and so forth yeah, yeah, yeah what's yeah. going on there exactly. well we, we, we like to learn from each other okay yeah. so that's what we're doing today and yep. what are we doing today well we're talking about uh, Erica Rummel right and Erasmus as a translator of the classics this would be Erasmus of Rotterdam yes are there other Erasmi that I you... think there are yeah yes he's the most famous one right now I was reading that he was uh, he spent a lot of his early life in Gouda. Yes. And I thought you'd have a field day with that. With uh, I would. Yeah, in pun-wise, perhaps. It doesn't get any Gouda than this. Exactly. That's all I wanted. <laughs> That's all I need. Yes, 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 yes. So we got a shout out, don't we? And this is a friend of yours yes. from way down south in Texas. Yes, he's bounced around. He's originally from the Chicago area. Okay. Um, uh, but currently living in Waco, Texas. Mm. Uh, this is a, a good friend of mine, Eric Kaufman. Eric Kaufman. Yeah, we were, we were actually roommates way back in the day. In graduate school? Uh, no, in, uh, in undergrad. Actually. Oh, he is a yep. Calvin graduate. He is. Yep. Okay. Uh, great guy. He was uh, trained as an engineer, mm-hmm. but he was always one of these guys that's very interested in, in everything. I love this here where you say, structural engineer by training, mm-hmm. polymath by nature. Yeah. He just, was just born with lots of math pollied up? Very, very, well, not so much math, but, you know, he's, he likes to know a lot of things. Okay. Yes, right. So um, he's a really good tennis player. Wow. Right now he's currently involved in a, a venture of uh, inventing this kind of tennis caddy by which you can store all your tennis equipment and, and and take videos of yourself. Is Bill Murray involved in this? It should be. Yeah. It, yeah that's the, like that's the, the tennis pitch, caddy shack. That's the pitch man he needs. Okay. Right. right. So he's a really, he's always, his mind is always working on the next thing. That's but, wonderful. Uh, I like those kinds of guys. So, and he, I think he was one of the first uh, purchasers of, of a t-shirt. He got an A.N. t-shirt. He did. Yep. He, all yep, right. He got the one with, uh, with Heracles on it. He yes. sent me a picture of it. Yeah. So. The Quinokent Dokent. Yes. That's the one. It's an Erasmian quote. You like that tie-in? Oh, man. What doesn't kill you makes you strong. Quite no Kent, do Kent. Didn't even realize that. Uh, what about his wife? His wife Alicia is a, a brilliant woman. She teaches at Baylor okay. University. She teaches history there. She's an expert uh, on mainline uh, Protestantism in America. Fascinating. Written a couple of books, and and so they are. Wow. They're sweating it out down there in wacky Waco. Yeah, that's right. And they got two shout outs here: Eric and Alicia Kaufman. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your patronage, the t-shirt buying, and uh, uh, especially being a friend to Jeff all these years. You know, it's, it's that's got to be a order. hard road to hoe. Not easy. Not easy. Shall we plug a product right here at the beginning? Go for it. Okay. Yeah, what do we got? Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, or Latin Teaches Itself, like I like to call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A program I've developed. Go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Sign up for the course. We're thinking about raising the price. Oh, you are? Well, yes, it's been very popular. It's got lots of video instruction. You're in the classroom with me teaching you how to either teach this textbook or learn Latin ab initio from the ground up. All right. So there's a, the, there's a groundswell. There is a groundswell. Okay. And you want to get in on the above ground pool before it... Before the, the, the price jumps. Exactly. All right. So All check right. it out. Okay. So, uh, Dave, you got our opening quote today. I do. And this comes from a book we're going to be using quite a bit in this episode. And it is called Erasmus, A Critical Biography by Leon E. Halkin. Okay. Translated by John Tonkin. 
Translate that from what language? Is, uh, uh, it is from, no, I knew you were going to ask me that. German. German, okay. okay. Translated from German, unless it's French. I'll have to check during the break. <laughs> uh, embarrassing. Uh, first published by Blackwell in 1987, and then um, translated into English in 1993. So here's the quote. Erasmus was 13 when his mother died of the plague. When the epidemic reached the students, the school was closed. Erasmus returned to his father, who died in turn, struck down by the same disease. Now an orphan, Erasmus was obliged, all too early, to exchange the innocence of childhood for the harsh realities of the adult world. He took pains to keep in touch with his elders, but too many memories linked him to his parents for him not to have been shaken to the deepest roots by his tragic loss. These memories, joyful as well as painful, Erasmus kept secret, for he was one of those who seek rather to forget than to remember their early years. The distressing complexes which illegitimacy, loneliness of heart, and poverty bring with them dwelt in full measure within this helpless adolescent. Ooh, that's a, a true hard luck story. There. It is, yeah. really. Yeah, this would be, you'd see uh, like in one of those um, bio backgrounds on an Olympic athlete with, exactly. the, with the violence in the background. Right. Look how much this person had to overcome. Exactly. Yeah. And that's Erasmus. It's a reminiscent a little bit of um, the quote we read for uh, Virgil. This is from Conte, right? His life was dedicated to almost unremitting toil over poetry. Mm. Yeah. So we know very little about Virgil. Now, we have a lot of information about Erasmus in his biography. Right. But similarly, he was never married. Mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, obviously didn't have children. He was just dedicated to a life of letters. A hundred percent, that was it. And he, he bounced around a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So born in uh, Rotterdam. So Erasmus Rotterdamus, that's his, you know, his demonym, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Desiderius, name means lovey, hmm. right? Yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. That's probably desired, loved, Lo yeah. lovey. That probably maybe that didn't help in, in the schoolboy <laughs> years. Think that no, helped. yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, then ended up uh, dying in Basel, Switzerland, in 1536. Hmm. Mm -hmm. He's probably most known for um, the great controversy that he had with Martin Luther, and we're going to touch on that just a little bit today because it's fascinating. Right, right. Now, you, I remember a few years ago, you did some traveling throughout. Um, Areas of Europe kind of associated with yeah the Protestant Reformation. Right. right? Did you did you go to any Erasmus locations? No, I didn't make it to Basel. Okay, uh, you didn't make it. To, okay, Geneva and um, went to Geneva. That was in 2018, uh, 20 just before COVID in 2020. Uh, got to see Strasbourg and Paris, mm -hmm. and of course Erasmus was in Paris. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think he was ever in Strasbourg. I could be wrong about that, but um, never been to Basel. So didn't see. His, I think he's buried there. Didn't see his. Group yes, right that's there. right. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Good friends of the man named Froben, a very famous uh, printer in Basel. Not I, but Erasmus was yeah. good friends with him. Okay. And a very important individual. Yeah. So Jeff, what are we giving the audience? You like that word, audience? Audience. I do. Because yeah. the last few episodes, I've stumbled over the viewer, the, the listener, listener, trying to decide. The audience kind of covers both of it those. It catches right? it. Yeah. yeah. What are we okay. giving our audience? Well, today we're going to give our audience. It's a quick look at the methods of the most important humanist of the Renaissance. He's, is he really the most important humanist? Absolutely. Without a doubt? Okay. Who, who is a contender? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I, sometimes you, you hear about this kind of this divide between there's the Northern Renaissance, that's there's right. the Italian Renaissance, right. and sometimes they're treated as kind of different categories. But you would say across the board. Across the board. Okay. And now he's not important in the way that uh, Lorenzo Valla or Petrarch, Petrarch mm -hmm. uh, the two Italians, because they really got it started. But he was the continuator, the systematizer of the project. And, yeah. And yeah, a northern humanist. Right. So we're going to, take a, we're going to talk about, we're going to start off talking about um, a bit of his biography, talk That's about right. his life, um, where, where the Halkin book is going to be our guide, right? And, um, and then we're going to move on to talk about um, this uh, one Erica Rummel. Right. Do you want to just kind of say something briefly about who is this woman? Well, um, we're going to get into her biography a little bit, too. And, and maybe if we can get her to actually listen to this episode, maybe we could have her on as a guest at some That'd point. That'd be great. She is a famous Renaissance scholar, and uh, she's written a, a number of fascinating books. I'm in the process of working through them. I've read two of them, um, Erasmus as a translator of the classics, mm -hmm. the one that we're dealing with today, and then uh, Erasmus... Uh, as an annotator of the New Testament, his annotaciones, oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Noam Testamentum. But she's written a lot of other things. She's written some some popular novels too, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I haven't read those. But uh, prolific, but prolific scholar, a very important scholar with an interesting biography. So it's kind of a twofer, you know, with Erica and Erasmus. Yes. All right. Sounds great. And I guess part of my motivation, if I can just say, mm -hmm. is that uh, I admire scholars like Dr. Rummel, you know, who works for a long time in one field, 
and uh, becomes distinguished, but also has other kinds of interests like novel writing. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you there. And, and I think she's one of those many unsung heroes in academia who actually uh, contributes something of lasting value. Yeah. And this, this book, uh, Erasmus as a translator of the classics, you could read this 300 years from now and still learn a lot. Yeah. It's not going to just pass from the stage. There's nothing trendy about it. Very cool. No, I respect that too. Although I think that um, you, when a, like an actor or an athlete like tries to cut an album, yeah, that, 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 does, that doesn't work. It works here in her milieu. Yes. But. <laughs> Here's an example. Okay. So um, we were playing a game with a group of friends a few weeks ago. And this, this fishbowl game, you know, fishbowl, you we put d- everything in, you draw things out and you got to guess and so forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the category was American president. That was okay. one of the categories. Okay. So one individual threw into the mix Kanye West. <laughs> On the theory that he's a future American president. <laughs> that, that, sadly, that might be correct. So isn't yeah. that the kind of crossover that you're talking I do, about? I don't, right? I don't like that. I didn't really go for it. No, no, that's, that's no good. No. But, um, but no, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Erica Rumble and her wonderful work. Exactly. Right? But we're going to start with talking a bit about uh, Erasmus, his life, his background. You want to take us into that? Yeah, so we're going to use this book by Leon Halkin, right? And uh, it's The Incredible Halkin. And uh, we're looking in the appendix, which has this this wonderful chronology. Now, those of you who like to listen to the podcast or watch it, audience members, and then you say, I'd like to read that book that they're talking about. That sounds fascinating. Yes. This one's out of print. What? Yeah, but you can find uh, paperbacks on ABE books and other places like that. Okay. It's got a great chronology in the back. So he's born in 1469. Right, so this makes him what thirty-one seventeen makes him forty-eight years old uh, before the Protestant Reformation begins. Yeah, which is kind of what he's most well known for in some ways. Right, you know the old saw: um, uh, Luther hatched the egg that Erasmus laid. Is that is that the is that old it. saw? That's the old saw. <laughs> Erasmus laid this egg, and you know, of, and Luther hatched it. Yeah, because Erasmus uh, brought the first critical edition of the New Testament in Greek, and that was mm. in fifteen sixteen. But as well, they were not all kind of; they weren't hunky dory on every no, everything, right? no, yeah. no, no. Right. And we'll talk about that a little bit. There's a great quote about how they viewed each other. It also st- struck me, just in terms of his chronology, he was also born. Uh, kind of roughly 25 years after um, Gutenberg's printing press. Oh, yes. Which has a, a massive of course. Uh, influence on, of on, course. on what, kind of what happens in terms of literature. Right? That's right. His yeah. career is unimaginable without Gutenberg. Right. Would have looked very, very different. Mm-hmm. So 1469 enters school in a place called Deventer uh, when he was nine years old, which is not really prodigious, precocious. That's, that's the typical age that a boy whose parents could afford it would go to school. Right. And start learning Latin. But as we learned, he's he's an illegitimate child. Yes, that's right. And it's not long after this that his parents both die. Exactly. So he's an orphan, uh, 1484, enters the monastery, you know, so he was pursuing uh, the life of a monk, um, gets his initiation into humanism. And this means that he, you know, is starting to study uh, Latin and the classics, thanks to the work of Lorenzo Valla and Petrarch and others who came before Bracciolini and, you know, the Italian famous individuals. Mm-hmm. So ordained as a priest in 1492, uh, travels around a little bit, eventually ends up in 1495 at the College of Montague in Paris, and he pursues courses at the Sorbonne. Okay. All right. You like how I said that? Sorbonne. Sorbonne. Yeah, very Instead nice. Sorbonne, as I used to, <laughs> I used to pronounce Sorbonne, it. yeah. Who is Sorbonne? <laughs> What happened to her? You ever been to the Sorbonne? I've never been to Paris. No. No. I would like to go there someday. Have I been? You just said you were. I thought the, you know, the audience yeah. would remember that. Yeah. Okay. Have you, did you go to the Sorbonne when you were there? I walked around the Sorbonne. Okay. What'd you think? Mm, eh. <laughs> In my own readings of Erasmus is that um, letters of, of his survive where he, he complains a lot about his teachers. Um, yes. He did not like kind of the, the harsh discipline of many of them. And That's he right. disagreed with many of them. He That's seems right. to have been kind of a, an irascible yes. uh, kind of maverick who pushed back against a lot of what he came up against. Absolutely he yeah. did. Yeah. And his efforts at reforming the church before Luther were not especially successful. And then when uh, Luther came in and said, no, we need a more radical reform, Erasmus pulled back, it seems, in part because he just didn't like Luther. Hmm. And it's that same kind of uh, contrary spirit. He didn't want to be swept away yeah. by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he publishes Cicero's Deificiis, and this is what launches his career as a philologist. I'm just quoting from Halkin here, and an editor of classical texts. That's in 1501. 
Okay. So right. just a couple other big points. 1511, the praise of folly, the um, laus stultitii, right, in praise of stupidity. Yeah. Or the uh, morii encomium. That's clickbait right there. Oh, absolutely. You know? <laughs> what a brilliant title. It is a great title. In praise of folly. Right. And uh, that, of course, is going to launch his career all around Europe. Now he's famous. The next big date, 1516, he publishes the New Testament in Greek and Latin. And, of course, a year later with Luther's works, and uh, then he dies in 1536. Could we pause? I don't know how, how, you know, how uh, off track this would take us, but I wondered if you could comment on... So he updates uh, Jerome's Vulgate, right? right? Can, do you know what exactly... What does he change? You know, what, what, yeah. was, what was in need of, of, of tweaking? What, what needed to be redone? Right. So we're going to get to that for we, okay. sure. All right, all right. Yeah. In this episode, we're going to have some specific quotes about places where... Um, Erasmus thinks that Jerome has ruined the beauty and artistry that occasionally pops up in the New Testament. You know, the figures of speech that uh, are there. Mm -hmm. And um, Jerome just kind of flatly ran over them. And Erasmus says, no, we got to do better here. We got to we got to clean this up. And he had better texts to work from. Did uh, did Erasmus know Hebrew? Um, no, he did not. Not, okay. not very well. All right. Okay. Well, you're asking me a lot of pointed questions well, here. Well, I mean, this is your swimming pool, sir. Yeah. So. All right. <laughs> so get out the the wacky noodles. So a uh, quote here from Halkin. This is from the Paris tutorship. This gets us started. Okay. Right? So the time when he's in Paris. He says, what Erasmus objected to in the scholastic philosophy in which Christianity had become bogged down, and particularly in the decadent scholasticism which was taught to him, was its arid rationalism. It's rigid systematization, it's authoritarian moralism, it's sterile logic, and it's pretentious verbiage. Hmm. It's quite a bit of pretentious <laughs> verbiage right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was not a fan of the four theological giants of the Latin Middle Ages, Gratian, Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, and Duns Scotus. He set Jesus in opposition to Aristotle. Erasmus mm, okay. did, and he made fun of St. Thomas, denouncing him for his overdone Aristotelianism. Okay. So I can see a bit of, of, of Luther there, right? You know, we don't yes. need to be filtered through these guys. We can right. go straight to the text. That's right. You would think they would have a lot in common. Yeah. And originally they kind of did. Yeah. Uh, and Luther was seeking to recruit Erasmus as a trophy for the new evangelical movement that he was spearheading. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, Erasmus backed off and said, whoa, 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 we have entirely different purposes here. Mm. You know, I welcome some of the things you're doing in terms of driving people toward the scriptures, but I'm not going all the way and rejecting Rome. Interesting. Erasmus would not do that. Yeah. So he, uh, Erasmus, is quoting again from Halkin, preferred the pagan Socrates to the Christian Scotus. For Socrates was, he said, quote, the most saintly of the philosophers who brought philosophy down from heaven to earth. Holy Socrates, pray for us. One of the guests declared or dared to say in Erasmus's colloquy, the religious banquet. Now, that had to have been a bit of a, uh, a hand grenade, right? You're right. He is yeah. sticking his finger in the eyes of scholasticism. Right. So in my, kind of my broad understanding of, of you know, one of the major differences between, say, the Italian Renaissance and the Northern Renaissance, which at least geographically we would associate Erasmus, is that um, the Italian Renaissance was much more rooted in a kind of kind of slouching towards a secular humanism. Mm -hmm. And the Northern Renaissance was much more um, uh, kind of Bible-focused, but Bible-focused through the through the eyes, through the pen of, of these scholias. Right. And so I think that makes Erasmus's take, his kind of his pushing back, all that much more mm. um, uh, pointed. And I think that in some ways he would, if he had done this, if he had been an Italian, right. uh, that these kinds of ideas may have been um, uh, more at home, or maybe, or, or would it just brought him in direct conflict with the Pope? I don't know. It. I mean, this is a long way of, of me saying is that Erasmus strikes me as a guy who just he never really found a home. Right. He, he's kind of be bounced. Oh, that's around. absolutely true. Yeah. Okay. Right. Absolutely true. He never left the Roman Church, and um, but he got criticized from both sides. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. Lutherans said, "Come on, Erasmus, you were saying all these things before 1517, and you greeted uh, Luther's early efforts. Why don't you just go all the way and renounce the Roman bishop?" He so he's criticized it. from the Lutherans. Exactly. Yeah. He was heavily criticized from uh, by Roman Catholics as well, who said. Why don't you denounce Luther in stronger terms? And he would say, look, I've already denounced him. Isn't that good enough? Yeah. But he was so sly and clever. He would not allow anyone to push him in a direction he didn't want to go. Right. And he also, he had no, he had no time for papal infall infallibility. So, That's right. I mean, so he had his own issues with the, with the Catholic tradition as well. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, what's next? And that is uh, his time in, in Italy. So this, this bears directly on what you were just saying a okay. moment ago about the difference between the Northern and the Southern Renaissance. Uh, maybe you can read some of this quote here from uh, Halkin, the first paragraph here in chapter eight. Like all Northern humanists, Erasmus was drawn towards Italy. In England, he had discovered Florentine Platonism and developed a taste for good literature. The English humanists had shown him their source, Italy. In the 16th century, Italy was still, and was to remain for a long, for a long time, a mosaic of states and the combat zone for international greed. For Erasmus, it was at one and the same time the fatherland of ancient literature, the heart of the Roman church, and the home of the new, human, new humanist movement. He was fully aware of this triple inheritance of pagan Rome, Christian Rome, and the Italian Renaissance. It was the land of Cicero and of St. Ambrose, of Valla and Pico della Mirandola. It was also the land of Bramante, of Botticelli, and of Raphael, but Erasmus never referred to them, though he called Petrarch the prince of the new eloquence. Hmm. Okay, all right. So now you, we've got it sketched out there, don't we? Those, yeah. those three levels that you and I have often witnessed, right, in our travels in Italy. Mm-hmm. So when people say to me, uh, you've probably had this experience, should I go to Greece first or should I go to Italy? Mm-hmm. I typically say, well, if you go to Greece, you've got, I would say, the most beautiful uh, place I've ever visited by far. So the natural beauty of Greece, I think, uh, surpasses that of Italy. I would agree with that. But you really only have two cultures there, right? You've got the ancient culture, which is, of course, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you have contemporary culture. But Greece, because of the Ottoman occupation, missed the Renaissance. Right, right exactly. In Italy, we've got, what, three levels, four levels? Yeah. You've got uh, antique, me- medieval, Renaissance, and contemporary. Right, so walk, comparing a walkthrough of, of uh, modern Athens and modern Rome are completely, radically different experiences. That's right, because yeah. it's just the, the levels the of... layers uh, of, 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 of time and culture. Right. Yep. So he was drawn to Italy. He spent time in Italy. He became a good friend of uh, Minutius, uh, a Venetian, um, you know, a fellow from Venice who was a, a, a famous uh, editor of classical texts and a printer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Erasmus was drawn down there, spent some time there, and uh, eventually moved back north. Good to have connections with a printer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, two different stints in England. As we'll as we'll see in time. Now, is he? Do you know? Is he lecturing? Is he teaching? I mean, how is he making a living? Is it from his writings? Or right. Well, um, this is a common thread, a constant thread, I should say, in the whole biography of Erasmus, is that he never had the resources and the funds that he needed. Hmm. This must have been enormously frustrating for someone of his talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the prince of humanists, the most important uh, scholar of his generation, maybe of the. 200 years preceding or after. Just really significant. And he's always scraping by. I mean, I have to think that if he was maybe a slightly more easygoing guy, he could have found a uh, a professorship somewhere and could well, have settled did. in and done his thing. But that's not who he was. No, he did get patrons. He was patronized by Henry VIII. You know, the guy with the giant turkey legs? Yeah, oh, of course. He <laughs> carried him in both hands everywhere he went. I think so. And when he wasn't beheading wives. Right. Yeah. But he just... Uh, Erasmus just had a lot of trouble with poverty. It's not uncommon at the time, mm-hmm. of course. You know, the, the standards of wealth today are so enormous compared to uh, what they had in the past. Very true. Um, yep. So then, Jeff, we move on from there yes. to the success of Praise of Folly. Okay. Right? This is what puts him on the map. And uh, so this work comes out, and uh, as Halkin says, the praise of folly had vigorously expounded what the crying abuses of the church owed to the decadence of the papacy and the negligence of the episcopate. Within the faculties of theology, nevertheless, it was not so much the praise of folly as the addition of the New Testament, which caused a scandal. So that was in 1516. Okay. When Erasmus came out with the first critical edition, really, of the Greek New Testament, the Noam Instrumentum. Okay. And there were a lot of individuals who were competing to be this guy. There were uh, a number of French scholars, Guillaume Boudet and Jacques Lefebvre de Teple. I can't pronounce French. Save my life. But Erasmus was the first, really, to get to the mark in 1516. Okay, so he he wins this race. Right. That's right. So now he presents to, to scholars all across Europe the opportunity to compare the Greek text with Jerome's uh, Latin edition and to find mistakes. And also, Erasmus gives a new translation in Latin of the New Testament. Okay. This okay. is groundbreaking. Yes. This is the, the egg, you might say, which Erasmus laid and Luther hatched, okay. at least according to the old uh, rendition. Right. So um, now he's uh, um, famous as a philologist. That's right. Was that was that more of a um, 
a focus going on in the north than in in, uh, no, in Italy? No, no, I, I don't think so. I just think that in the in the south, in in um, uh, central and northern Italy, the stakes were a lot higher for engaging in these kinds of activities, especially mm. after fifteen seventeen. Oh yeah, Be- right. Because if um, if it's true that the humanism and reform go together, and this is a really complicated subject. And in fact, if Professor Rummel listens to the podcast, she's probably going to come on and give me a tongue lashing because you you don't want to gloss over some of these complicated relationships. But nevertheless, uh, in the North, where reform had more success, mm-hmm. the connection between uh, the study of the Bible and the new theology, as you might call it, was really close. Sure. You couldn't do that in the South. Right. And of course, you can't discount just kind of the gravitational pull and political... Um, you know, way to the papacy. Exactly. Right? The closer you are to it, I mean... The more you're drawn. The more you're drawn to it, yeah. right. Yeah. So Halkin says, the philological critiques, these would be of Erasmus, disturbed the, the theologians who saw there a process of undermining aimed at shaking the foundations of the truth. Erasmus was to be accused of recklessness, error, and heterodoxy. Oh, my. Okay. So what kind of happened is because he was so independent-minded... As he begins publishing these things, Praise of Folly, you know, which is like a Lucian satire. It's like he's compared to Petronius after mm. he writes this, you know, the, the Dinner of Trimalchio sure. and so forth. Uh, he had kind of gotten his own um, raking over the coals. So then when Luther came out, Erasmus says, look, I've kind of been through this already. I have been, you know, the, the butt of many jokes and insults. I don't want to go all the way with reform. Ah. I'd rather stay within the safe confines. Yes. Okay. All right. So the praise of folly puts him on the map. That's right. Um, gives him a, a level of, of infamy as well. I Celebrity suppose. and a little bit of infamy. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. So we go on then, and we're going to go right into the heart of the conflict between Erasmus and Luther. Okay. And uh, this is still dealing broadly with his biography. And um, here, let me just read a little bit of uh, Halkin here. From which chapter is this? From the biography. This is a fantastic book. Chapter 15. The relations between Luther and Erasmus after they had become bogged down in polemic, were in the strictest antipathy according to the classical schema of the incompatibility of character. Hmm. They didn't like each other. They didn't like each other. <laughs> they, had, um, they had by nature, right, kind of like your friend Eric Kaufman, by mm-hmm. nature a polymath, right? Yeah. They had incompatible characters or temperaments by nature. Hmm. So they ultimately could not get along. Wow. Imagine yeah. if we got those guys on a podcast. Oh, that'd, be, that'd be fireworks. That'd be great. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen the Lutheran insult generator online? <laughs> no, but we, I, I can imagine. I've mentioned this to you before, right? You have, I haven't taken a look at yeah, it. Yeah, you go to the website and uh, you just press a button to hit me again, and it will uh, randomly generate <laughs> one of Luther's many insults. Maybe maybe Mishka could put that link. Yeah, that would be yeah. good if we yeah. can find that. <laughs> uh, so it continues here. Luther declared that Erasmus was lacking in piety and even in sincerity, he called him Dr. Amphibolus. Dr. Amphibolus. Yes, like he's a, he's a frog. He lives on, on land in his above-ground pool. Yes. He lives in water in the underground pool. <laughs> Erasmus has it both ways, Dr. Amphibolus. Oh, man, that sounds like a, like a Marvel villain. You think yeah, so? Dr. Amphibolus. That's, yeah. that's, that's good. Speaking of Marvel villains, yeah. did you see uh, not the ultimate Superman, but the penultimate Superman with Jake... Uh, Gelatinous, what's his name? Jake Gelatinous, isn't he? Isn't he Spider-Man? No, no, Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. Is that oh Gyllenhaal? Right. Okay. I, I, I confuse him with Tobey Maguire. Easy, easily done. Yes, yeah. Anyway, um, I, he was Superman. No, no, <laughs> that's DC. Okay. No, Jake Gelatinous was in the penultimate. Um, he was in the penultimate Spider-Man playing Mysterio. Oh, the guy who wears the the. Uh, a yeah, bowl on his head. I, I did not see it. Well, you didn't miss anything. Okay. <laughs> right. They didn't. They didn't do it well. But there's your Doctor Amphibolus, Do- Jake Gelatinous. Yes. yes. <laughs> why is he wearing? Why is he wearing that fishbowl on his head so he can live under underwater? A couple it, different exactly. realms. He wouldn't wear that if he was not Amphibolus. That's right. right. So, according to Luther, this is Erasmus. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, as the quote continues, thanks to the incredible Hawken. For Luther, Erasmus reproached Luther for being excessive and unpredictable. Where's your Aristotelian moderation, in Mm, other words? mm -hmm. He called him Dr. Hyperbolicus. Oh, I was wondering if he had a good comeback. He did, Dr. Hyperbolicus. (laughs) 
You like that? <laughs> That's great. For, yeah. for Luther, everything is World War Three, right? Yes, In other words, right. Not, he can't take anything with a grain of salt. Are, are these are they trading? Tra- sorry, trading these barbs in letters? Oh, of course, in print, in, in, or or in the, or in like works that they're publishing. Is that well, letters that they publish, right? So the, the, an open letter to so and so. So this like like rap artists dissing each other. Absolutely, West Coast to East Coast. Uh, you're beyond me now. Okay, all right, I don't okay. know what's going on yeah, there. Okay. Can we stick to Doctor Amphibolus Please, and Doctor Hyperbolicus? Let's bring it back. Okay, for Luther, Erasmus was a profaner. He was no longer even a Christian because he wouldn't decide for the truth, even though he'd say, you know, uh, Luther's probably right, but I'm not going to leave Rome. Hmm. Okay. That's kind of Erasmus's attitude. Right, and Luther says, hey, it's a a Fisher cut bait. It's showtime, do or die. For Erasmus, on the other hand, Luther was a blasphemer who adorned himself improperly with the evangelical label. Hmm. A blasphemer. Yeah. Okay. Because Luther would, you know, call down curses on on Rome and say, you know, the the Pope is the Antichrist and other kinds of, you know, standard Protestant polemic of that era. Yeah. So they had a major falling out. Do you think that you know Erasmus's stance is? Do you think he he held out a uh, a desire for you know, a, a unified church, or was yes. it just, or was it was just he was just grudge holding? Well. Yeah. Probably not fair to say to a dead man. I mean, about a, a dead man. Yeah. Uh, I've rehearsed this principle in class many times. Let's see if I can remember it. Uh, Nil nisi bonum de mortuis uh, decendum est. Yeah. You should say nothing but good about the dead. Yep. It seems to me a little bit as I read the biographies of these two men, uh, and I've, I've tried to do my homework, that maybe Erasmus was a little bit jealous of the celebrity that Luther had gotten. Hmm. Because Luther... Uh, you know, became so much more famous than Erasmus. Luther is a good humanist of his own, uh, yeah. on, on his own, right? He could write fantastic Latin, but he's no Erasmus. In fact, the, the only guy who uh, could claim a kind of Erasmian level of eloquence was Luther's close friend and successor, uh, Philip Melanchthon. Hmm. And in fact, Melanchthon was a good friend of Erasmus, and I think that Erasmus was personally aggrieved that Melanchthon sided with Luther against him. Right, because Melanchthon was a, a brilliant author. His Latin is just phenomenal. Yeah, and he said, "No, I'll, I'll stick with the bombastic uh, Doctor Amphibolus. I'm not going to go with Erasmus, the more refined individual." Interesting. I mean, it, I mean, it's it seems clear to me that um, the interesting idea that if Erasmus was jealous, but I think Luther had much more of a stomach for to slug it out in the ring. Absolutely, than, than Erasmus ever. Erasmus did, right? had no stomach for no, that no, no, whatsoever. No. Right, although. Um, <clears throat> Although he could, you know, in print, be very acerbic, very, Hmm. very barbed. Maybe just this last quote here from this chapter, and then we'll wrap up this portion. Okay. The expression clean sweep graphically describes Luther's radical manner by which he eliminated everything apart from the Bible and the fathers, which hampered the development and expansion of his ideas. Now, that's controversial, right? I don't think Dr. Rummel necessarily would agree with that. And as I read other, um, as I read other scholars of this time period, Luther's not quite as radical as maybe the biographer presents him here. Okay, okay. But, you know, it's, it's for the sake of showing off the superpowers of Dr. Amphibolus. Yes. <laughs> In denying the supreme authority of the visible head of the invisible church, the Pope, uh, Luther harshly contradicted the ecclesiology inherited from the Gregorian reform. So going all the way back into the medieval period. Okay. All right. So that's it in terms of uh, where we stand with a quick sketch of Erasmus biography. Great. This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For the last 50 years, I believe this is exactly their 50th year Absolutely. Of, of, uh, of operations uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana. What has Hackett been bringing to the public? Well, they have been bringing independent academic book publishing for these past 50 years. They just launched a new website, and as part of the launch, mm-hmm. the anniversary celebration, yes. uh, they are giving... Anyone who orders $50 or more from the website, a free Hackett tote bag. I want a tote bag. You do? I do. So when you and Mrs. Winkle celebrate an anniversary, yeah. is that what you do? You buy her a tote bag? But I buy things, then we tote them around. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have a, a broad range of new classical studies titles coming out. The Essential Greek Historians uh, by Stanley Bernstein. Uh, Burstein, excuse me. They got a new edition of Aeneid Book 7 uh, with extensive revisions and additions. They've got, uh, what else do they have coming? That that edition of The Frogs that you like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, um, Peter Meinick. 
Yes, yep. that's right. Yep. And uh, they've got the essential Thucydides coming out on justice, power, and human nature. And uh, you know that Erasmus, the subject of this episode, mm-hmm. translated a lot of Lucian, right? The, oh, uh, yeah. the Greek author. Yes. They've got a new edition of three Manipian fantasies coming out by Joel Relihan. Fantastic. I love Lucian, right? That's got to be an upcoming episode uh, uh, for us. Yes, we'll have to do that. And if you go to the Hackett website right now and you enter the word Erasmus into the search bar, two titles will pop up. First is a free edition. You can download it for free. The Bryn Mawr Commentary on the Laos Stultitii, The Praise of Folly. Yeah. A PDF. It's fantastic if you want to read the work in Latin, and why wouldn't you? Yeah. Now, that's that's a confident company if they're just giving stuff away. They are just giving stuff away. That's the general generosity. And if you want to read more about the conflict between Erasmus and Luther, they have one volume devoted to the subject on the battle over the will. So this is edited with notes by Clarence Miller and Peter McCardle uh, with an introduction by James D. Tracy. So they have selected uh, things from Erasmus and Luther on this subject of the free will and put it into one nice handy volume. Very impressive. You can get the cloth edition uh, for only $48, the paperback, or an examination copy if you are a professor for $3. That is a bargain. So listeners, if you want to take advantage of of all this stuff, you go to hackapublishing.com, find the text that you want, drop them in the little tote, the tote, the digital and tote, get a tote, and get a tote, and you will get twenty uh, percent off and free shipping if you type in the coupon code AN two zero two two. You can be like that uh, NPR personality, Jeffrey Toten books. <laughs> am did, I am I you, close? You're close. Did you just get? Did you just? Bring I that? just thought it up That's right not now. Bad. That's not bad. Right? No, it's pretty bad. Is but it? I did just think it up. Okay. This is how I always excuse bad jokes. Yeah. Oh, right. But they, they, they just I didn't, came to you. I didn't plan them ahead. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. You had no choice. I'm but an unbaked pie, basically. <laughs> So uh, don't hesitate. Go check it out. Yes. Also, this episode is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. And we have a little special thing today, don't we? We do. In the ad? Yeah, we have a, it's a, a product review. A product review from a website that can't spell, apparently. <laughs> kitchen. Kitchen. What, why? Uh, kitchen without an E. Uh, no E in kitchen. The, nope. They're taking the E out of the, ki- out of the kitchen? I guess so. This is an article by Lisa Friedman, published July of 2021, and uh, there's some great stuff in here. Jeff, why don't you read a little bit of this? Okay, What's so the, the headline? The headline is, I waited months to try this trendy coffee maker that kept selling out. Wait for it. It was worth it. It was worth it. Yes. She says, uh, Lisa says, have you ever wondered what would happen if a Chemex and a drip coffee maker had a baby? Constantly. Jeff? I, yeah. This is what keeps you awake at night. I, I, have, I, have, to, I have no idea. What, I, what is a Chemex? What? I don't know what a Chemex, Chemex is. is the uh, the pour over. This is the fancy cone kind of thing. See, okay. you are so indoctrinated into the racial I, world. I don't want to think about any other machine. <laughs> right. So Chemex is the pour. So if that and a drip coffee maker had, had, a, a, baby. had a baby, right? This is what you get? Yeah. Okay. Lisa says, no, you probably haven't That's because true. you likely have other things on your mind. Regardless, I have that answer for you. It would look like a racial coffee maker. Okay. Allow me to explain. Ratio is a coffee maker company based in Portland, Oregon. It was founded by Mark Helweg, who didn't understand why the automatic coffee maker hadn't evolved much over the years. <laughs> Bothered by the fact that coffee drinkers had to choose between either a complicated brewing method or a way too simple one, he set out to design a new machine, one that makes pour-over coffee, that's your Chemex, mm-hmm. as easily as making a pot of drip. That's, that's very, very true. There we go. Yeah. So uh, she goes on, see, the magic of a pour-over coffee is not to be underestimated. It creates a robust, more flavorful brew that's smooth and hardly has any acidity. Yes, but she says nothing in here about brackish tang. No, well, I think she's she. that's the clear subtext. Is it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> when she says hardly any acidity, that means no brackish tang. And she doesn't talk about off-gassing, does no, she? No, or the, the, the bloom the, the bloom uh, stage. She's getting to the bloom. Continue, please. Right, we might have to drop a note to this, this woman here. <laughs> Dear a, Lisa, yes, where's uh, the bloom stage? <laughs> So it's a longer brewing process compared to drip coffee, so there's more intricate flavor extraction. I like the sound of that. I do, yes. But it also requires hands-on time. You have to stand there and, oh, here we go, and okay. bloom the coffee and carefully pour the water around the ground. See, I don't know. Can bloom be a transitive verb? To bloom? Uh, bloom the coffee? I don't think so. No, she's, she's, she's verbing here. I do some gardening. Do you do some gardening? Garm- garm- <laughs> <laughs> 
You do some garmenting, I garmenting, can see, yes. th- uh, thankfully. My wife likes to do a lot of gardening. Okay, yes. so does uh, the lovely Mrs. Winkle ever say to you, I'm going to bloom my roses today? She's never said anything. That's like not that. a transitive that's, verb. That's right. No. Anyway. I, I think I think she's she's snapping and bebopping. Okay, she's keep doing. going. All right, so uh, she says, no stepping away to blow dry your hair like you could with a drip coffee maker. <laughs> <laughs> she says, the ratio is an automatic coffee maker that makes pour over. It blooms. There she goes again. Hey, here we go. Yep. Transitive verb. It blooms the ground and does a careful pour. And everything. Oh, and it's freaking gorgeous. Okay. I wanted one. The only problem was that lots of other people did too. The machine was constantly selling out and it took months to finally get my hands on one. After patiently waiting, I've been using a ratio eight for weeks now. That's your machine? That's mine. The eight is the, uh, I don't like what she says here. Uh, the priciest model. Let's let's uh, euphemize that. The eight is the um, less attainable model. <laughs> Okay. And uh, there's also a smaller ratio six. That's the one that you have. I do. Right? Yeah. Which yeah. has a slightly different look to it. Yes. Oh. So if uh, if so, listeners uh, or audience, if you don't take our word for it, take it from Lisa here. Lisa Friedman. Yep. She's, she she she's, tells you. She's all over it. She loves it. We love it. Okay. Great stuff. So if you want to get one of these great coffee machines, which are now available, Jeff, what does the audience member need to do? They need to go to ratiocoffee.com, and you can get uh, the offers both for the eight and also for the six. That's right. And if you type in the coupon code ANCO. Drop it in your Hackett tote bag. Yep. Uh, how much do they get off? They get 15% off. 15 Yes, yeah, so uh, check it out. Take a, take our word for it. Take Lisa's word, word for it. Do it today. Wait. All right, so Dave, as we get back into it, um, we're going to talk more about um, Erasmus's life, or are we going to yes. get more into kind of his uh, the, the nitty-gritty of his, of his work? Well, uh, we're going to talk first about Dr. Erica Rummel. Okay, yes. And then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, right down into the particulate matter, the rudera, we can drop a little Latin. The nitis gritis. There you go, yes. of Erasmus and what he did as a translator. Okay. So let's start out by by sharing a little bit with the audience about this fantastic scholar, Erica Rummel, who wrote this amazing book. Jeff, what do we know? All right, so this comes from ericarummel.com. Uh, Sounds like an authoritative source. I would say so. And she, she writes, uh, she says, well, I thought a doctorate in classics would be a great help uh, in talking about um, uh, pursuing what she was, her, right, her interest. Right. So I enrolled at the University of Toronto and I wrote my thesis on Greek philosophy to the background music of two crying, toy-throwing, dinner-and-love-demanding kids. Whoa. Man. It's like you, except you got three. I got three, but I didn't have them while I was writing my dissertation. No. It makes me, I feel embarrassed for complaining as I did back then. I well. Nothing going on. We all have a lot to be embarrassed about. <laughs> I, have a, I have a photo Mrs. Noe took where I'm trying to finish my dissertation. Yeah. One child sitting on one knee and I'm holding the baby in the other knee. Uh, I mean, in the in my arm. Yeah. <laughs> holding the baby in the knee. <laughs> I'm wearing an Incredible Hulk t-shirt that somebody gave me. Yeah. Oh, that's and, great. I um, want to see this photo. So you can relate to this a bit. Well, yeah. I mean, Mrs. Noe did most of the work with the kids at that stage. They were so small. But yeah, yeah you know, it's... But let's let's be honest. Most people writing dissertations have multiple barriers to overcome. That's very lots of that's, challenges. That's true. Uh, she goes on. Over the next decade, I worked for the University of Toronto Press on a project to publish the works of the 16th century humanist uh, Erasmus. It was great, except that my husband was transferred to Argentina which meant a long commute for me. Oh my God, she's serious. She commuted from Argentina. That is a long commute. I wow. hope it was by airplane. Sheesh. Yes, you may call me crazy. I kept my job and commuted. My routine was three months up north, three months down south. Did I mention that we had small kids? Those were chaotic years, but I managed to publish my first short story and taught courses on Renaissance history at the University of Toronto. After we resettled in Toronto, I was hired by the Department of History at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, a much shorter commute than to Argentina. But um, change. <laughs> nice, nice, Dr. Rummel. Um, those were the publisher parish years. I performed like a trained monkey, putting out a book a year. My goodness. Do monkeys do that? Oh, man. How many monkeys does a book put out? Whoops. Uh, How many books does a, a monkey, monkey put out? <laughs> so she's put out? She put out a book a year, and she was re- rewarded with a full professorship. Yeah. So yeah. here are some of the titles. All right. Uh, a Noble Affair, The Correspondence Between Alfred Noble and Sophie Hess. All right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The Humanist Scholastic Debate in the Renaissance and Reformation, which won a book choice, uh, a book by choice magazine award. Very nice. Actually, that's the next one I'm going to read. I just checked it out of the library today. This very one. Okay. That's right. Uh, another one, The Case Against Johann Reuschlin, a religious and social controversy. Now, Reuschlin was the um, uncle of Philip Melanchthon, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And uh, it's a riveting story of how he got into all kinds of trouble. All right. And then we have um, uh, Jimenez de Cisneros on the threshold of Spain's golden age, Mm. Uh, a book just entitled Erasmus. Yes, and then maybe the best title. 
Yes. You want to read that one? Oh, yeah. Scheming Papists and Lutheran Fools, Five Reformation Satires. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that yeah. does sound good. Yeah. And she's the author of two novels. Yeah, so then when we were talking about, she she, That's right. um, she swims in many pools herself. That's so, right. Uh, Is that going to be the abiding metaphor, the whole, the I'm whole almost, episode? I'm, I'm almost done with it. All right. right. So uh, two novels, one entitled Playing Naomi and the other one called Head games. All right. right. Also, the title of a of a, a song, of a, right? Of a great foreigner track. Is that yeah. foreigner? Foreigner. Head yes. games. It's you and me, baby. You got it. Is you that how it goes? That's that's right. All right. All right, Dave. Let's talk about this book. This Erasmus okay. as a translator of the classics. Where do we start here? Well, the book is a, a brilliant book, as I've said. Uh, also out of print, but you may be able to find if you're an interested audience member. You may be able to find uh, an edition used somewhere. It's fantastic. I was able to pick one up. Divided up into seven chapters and okay. a conclusion. All right. I like a book with seven chapters. That's 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 very approachable. It's manageable, right? Yep. This is a, a brilliant monograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it? Um, is it? Uh, it's like user friendly how approachable how approachable is it if you yeah. have no knowledge of greek and no knowledge of latin you may not enjoy it all that much okay however she not only gives uh greek and latin in you know in the text itself but then she translates all of it and um, she's herself a good translator i would say okay uh so the first one chapter one first steps Erasmus's Greek studies. And I want to begin with this quote because it's really indicative of the whole work and uh, sets the tone. She says, quoting Erasmus, no Latin expression, said Erasmus in the Copia, one of his works, can approach the charm of a Greek one when we allude to a passage or remark of some author. Okay. All right. His appreciation of the evocative qualities of the language that is a Greek language and its subliminal appeal was, however, coupled with a recognition of its value as a currency in the learned world. Erasmus recognized its exclusive character. Greek could be used as a password to establish instant rapport between scholars or as a secret code to keep the uninitiated at bay. Uh-huh. Okay. You like that? I like that a lot. Yeah. That's very nice. To know Greek meant to belong to an inner circle. And Erasmus embarked on his studies, seeking both a literary experience and a place among the acolytes of new learning. Okay. Yeah. When I was doing some background reading, uh, I, I some author mentioned that um, when when Erasmus was coming up through school, um, Latin was still kind of you know the, uh, the you know the language of the day, and Greek was just starting to be taught. Um, at exactly. levels below the university. That's right. Yes. So That's it was right. still, it was still, so as you're saying, it, it was a mark of, of being uh, supremely educated. Yes. Yeah. You were on the inner, you were in the inner sanctum. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on the very next page, right, this, this sets the tone for the book as well. I need to share this part if I can. Erasmus regarded his translations from the classics, not as an end in themselves, but as a means of perfecting his skills, as a useful exercise, preparing him for the greater task of editing and interpreting ecclesiastical texts. So that's a dominant theme, actually, throughout the history of studying Greek and Latin. Right? How does one uh, approach the subject of talking about something like the Trinity mm-hmm. or uh, you know the will of man, the incarnation? Well, you you don't just set a young scholar loose on some of these high and lofty doctrines. They first have to kind of work their way up to really significant things, right? By practicing on Xenophon, mm-hmm. Virgil, Aristotle. Plato, something that, you know, the stakes are lower, you might say. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right, Dave. So what are some of the things that Erasmus uh, translated in, right. that de- that de- demonstrate his his skill? Yeah, I think you'll really like this because these are two authors you're very fond of. Okay. Uh, he translated Lucian. Yes. Right? Uh, the satires and so forth, the Manipian satires. And he translated a lot of Euripides. Oh, really? I know Euripides is probably your favorite tragedian, he right? Is. Yeah, without a doubt. That's right. And Erasmus, uh, this is again, going from Rummel's book, um, page 28. So we're now we're up into chapter two, the years of apprenticeship, uh, when he was just a Padawan, you might say. Mm-hmm. Got to work a little bit of pop culture in there, there and nobody will Very listen. Nice. Yes. Erasmus was acquainted with the works of at least two of the advocates of liberal translation, Lorenzo Valla and Leonardo Bruni. In the preface to his translation of Demosthenes' Pro Ctesiphonta, you know, on behalf of Ctesiphon, mm-hmm. Lorenzo Valla lays down a number of principles of successful translation that are manifest in Erasmus's version. Uh, here we go. The translator must demonstrate rhetorical skills. Greek has a greater range of expressions and grammatical structures than Latin, and the translator must therefore have a fertile and creative mind to discover suitable equivalent modes of expression. 
Quote, often the Greek character of speech must be abandoned and a new figure of speech must be created and devised. Okay, okay. So, uh, break it down, uh, unpack that a little bit for me. So, what exactly is he saying about kind of the differences with the, or the advantages of, of Greek over Latin? Right. right. Well, <clears throat> a Greek is a far more flexible language. Mm-hmm. I'll just give one example. Greek has a participle uh, for the verb to be, right? Ani. Yes. And so because of that participle, you can have a, a broader range of nuances than is easily achieved in Latin. Okay. Latin has no uh, present participle uh, for the verb esse. Now, it was developed later during the medieval period because people said, hey, we need a participle like the Greeks have. <laughs> And it just seemed to have naturally uh, arisen in the language on that basis. There were protests in the street. People demanded exactly give us the participle. (laughs) Right. So you have you know works like um, Aquinas's De Enta et Essentia on being in essence. You know that Enta there. That's the participle. That's the participle. Cicero could not have used something like that. The form didn't exist. But Greek had had it forever. Mm -hmm. Greek also has these particles, right? These particles are these little, mostly monosyllables, de, ge, G, yeah. gar, all of these. Yeah. And I like to uh, liken them to um, seasoning, right? Mm-hmm. You don't sit down and eat a whole bowl of cinnamon, but if you put an eighth of a teaspoon of cinnamon into something, it can change the whole character of the dish. Exactly, right. And that's yeah. what a particle is like. Latin doesn't have particles. I mean, it has very few. And uh, masters like Cicero, you know, they tried to imitate the flexibility of the Greek language. Yeah. I once had a professor tell me that uh, the g right. in Greek, he says it's the stamp of a foot. Stamp the, of a foot? Physical. Was this Rich Weavers? No, this is a, a grad school professor. Ah, yeah. Because Richard Weavers, our professor, he'd yeah. love to talk about g. He did. I can hear, yes. I can hear him saying it. I can it. hear yeah. it too. Yeah. Just, just, just this and g, <laughs> gar, uh, all of those, <laughs> da and de and mm-hmm. so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. Um, so... We have, um, we have Erasmus translating Euripides from Greek into Latin. And uh, I'd like to just read just a little bit of this if I can. So this is from lines uh, 1467 to 1475. Uh, of what play? Of his translation of, I think it's the Hecuba. Okay. You like the Hecuba? It's, it's not my favorite, but I like, I like Euripides across the board. Okay. Yep. So the Hecuba, she is a preams... Uh, widow, yes. right? And yep. and she and Odysseus are in some kind of a big quarrel about what's going to happen to the rest of her family. Right, right, right. Um, so we have, you know, the uh, the original Greek goes like this: Parade leko leko fae psamathon heleso menai kulia pente konta koragamus nereos echo rosan, something like that. And uh, we've got Erasmus turning it into Latin poetry. Which, I mean, let's give him some props right there, right? Yeah. That's a pretty amazing thing to be able to that's, do. That's huge, yep. Dein de peraequira condiguli leweque perspatium sabuli, aequario sata turba sene, nexus auroribus edecies, quinque agitatque rotatque coros, orbibus enumeris, meliculopeda replicitis canubium levibus concelebrans coreis. Very nice. Very yeah. nice, and, yeah. And then we got the English. Then by the sea, by the smooth expanse of glistening sand, the numerous children born to the old man of the sea, a band of ten times five sisters, dances and twirls in countless circles, entwining their supple legs, celebrating the wedding with light-hearted dance. Right. I like that, I like that English translation. Yeah, that too. is good. That's right. Dr. Rummel. She did a nice job Very there. Very nice. But the corresponding lines of Euripides, you know, in some sense, uh, Erasmus is taking quite a few liberties at, at this stage in his career as a translator. Okay. So we have the, the English of the Euripides, then along the glistening sand, forming a circle, the 50 daughters of Nereus danced the wedding dance. It's quite simple by yeah. comparison yeah, yeah. to uh, what Erasmus gives us in Latin. Okay, okay. Now, did, did Erasmus ever um, translate anything into his native Dutch? Well, it struck me one of the differences between him and Luther, and Luther translating things into German. That's a good point. But um, he seems to be mostly translating into Latin. Yeah, so Erasmus was an educated man and therefore didn't deal with a vulgar tongue. Ah, okay. Is that (laughs) that what's going on? Okay. All right. I don't know. All right. All right, where do we go from here? We skip ahead to this competition. You were talking about rap battle before? Yes, is this one of them? We skip ahead to this competition uh, between Sir Thomas More, you know, the man for all seasons, uh, and Erasmus over the translation of Lucian. 
Now these these two these guys were good friends. They right? were very good friends. Yes. Exchanged a lot of letters, and you know Thomas More, the famous English humanist, mm-hmm. right, who ran afoul of Henry VIII when when oh, Henry yes, wanted course. to. Um, uh, you know, adopt reform, and Thomas More said, "No, you can't do that." So this is chapter three, and uh, here's some really interesting material about how Erasmus uh, approached his uh, his work as a translator. As in all of Erasmus's translations, this is page sixty. We find a good number of free versions, many chosen for idiomatic reasons. For example, we have this Greek word "aparosi," literally, they are at an impasse. Erasmus translates as "high rent." They are stuck. You know, so to be at a loss, mm-hmm. how, how are you going to get that across in Latin? He chooses this hyreo, to be stuck in a place. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a brilliant rendition, I would say. Yeah. All right, Dave, now you're going to tell us about some time that Erasmus uh, spent in Cambridge. That's correct. And translating some Plutarch. Yes. So okay. this was his second visit to England. He was invited there by Henry VIII before all the trouble broke out. And Professor Rummel shares with us some interesting insight into how Erasmus approached his work as a translator. Okay. How he's imitating Cicero, in fact. All right. The Ciceronian device, this is page 76, of using two synonymous expressions for one single Greek phrase, which we have already encountered in earlier translations, is also represented in this piece of work. The piece of work here is how Erasmus took Plutarch's Moralia, a collection of stories about how to behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought that into Latin from Greek. Three examples of this practice will illustrate the point. So we have, uh, say, armant ac muniunt. They arm and fortify themselves. Uh, this is his translation of haplizontes hautus, arming themselves. So you've got one Greek participle, mm-hmm. haplizontes, right? And uh, I'm sorry, haplizontes. And that's the, you know, the verb haplizo, to take up arms, like hoplite. Like hoplite, exactly. So Erasmus says, how can I get this haplizontes hautus, arming themselves? How can I represent that accurately in Latin? Well, a common trick is to take one Greek word and represent it with two English words or Latin words. This is something that Cicero did. Yes, Cicero did this in his translations all the time. Okay. So he says, I'll I'll say, uh, say armant acmuniant. And you have to do that because if the if the word in the source language is rich and has nuances that no one word in the target language will capture, you have to just kind of spread it around yep, a little bit. You gotta unpack it. Exactly. Yep. All right. Another example, um, we have excitat et moet. He shakes up and moves. So this is Erasmus's translation of the one Greek verb kine, he moves. You know, the verb kineo, like uh, kinetic energy. He sets in motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how are you going to get that across from Greek? Because it's a, you know, it's a pretty rich, um, pregnant verb. Mm -hmm. How are you going to get that across into Latin? Well, we'll just represent it with two different words. Gotcha. Okay. So this is, he does this, this is all from Plutarch. Yes. All right. Yep. So when he's going, taking Plutarch from Greek into Latin, now we come to chapter five. Chapter five. All right. What's going on in chapter five? Chapter five, as you can see from the title. Yes. Philology, the handmaiden of theology, the translation and annotation of the New Testament. Exactly. This is the thing that got him into some hot water. Definitely. Now, uh, Professor Rummel, you know, she may be cheating a little bit here because, yes, I know, she says here at the beginning of the chapter, our study of Erasmus's translations has been limited to the classics. After all, that's the title of the work, right? Yes. Erasmus as a translator of the classics. She yeah. says, but any examination of his methods and techniques would be deficient if it neglected his most significant contribution to philology, the translation of the New Testament. So you say she's cheating here by throwing this well, in. Well, it's not exactly cheating, but obviously everybody wants to know, well, how did he handle the New Testament? Right. We've seen how he handled Lucian and Plutarch and these other classical yeah, authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she finds, you know, what I would say is a plausible excuse, a good reason to slip some of this in here. It's almost like, while we're here, exactly. we might as well exactly. stop for donuts. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she says, page 92, in reviewing the aims of the translator, Erasmus emphasized three elements, clarity, purity, stylistic appeal. Okay. So that's the takeaway, right? From the whole book, you might say, what did Erasmus think was most important in a translator? Clarity, purity, so don't introduce any foreign elements, mm-hmm. and the um, the style has to be appealing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Okay, all right. So now is this where he's, he's updating Jerome? 
And Precisely. Okay. This is where he's criticizing the Vulgate, right? And this is what gets him into the hot water, right? He's an advocate of error, maybe. Some of his more conservative, or what you could even call reactionary opponents, they would say, uh, you know, you are undermining altogether um, the basis of the authority of the Christian faith. Right. Now, he didn't accept that, um, but we have this great quote from Rummel. In one case, for instance, Erasmus noted that the translator of the Vulgate had ruined, quote, ruined the beauty of prosonomasia, it's kind of wordplay, and enantiosis, which is apposition or opposites, by translating these two participles, ace er commonon and ex er commonon. So there's wordplay here, right, in the New Testament. Ace er commonon going into a place and ex er commonon coming out of a place. The Vulgate translates them as ingreditur mm-hmm. and procadit, respectively. Mm. So he loses the you lose he, the wordplay. He loses the wordplay yeah. altogether. Mm. So Jerome is trying to be so strictly careful with the meaning yes. that, according to Erasmus, he completely glosses over um, the wordplay that's involved in the New Testament. Now, just a quick kind of chronological note. So by this, right. this time. Um, Jerome's translation has been about, around for about a thousand years, right? Absolutely. Right. So yeah. it, it's reached kind of a almost a notion of kind of biblical authority, definitely. Like, like like almost like Aristotle has this kind of its stranglehold, definitely. Right? Okay, yeah. and it becomes canonical, if I'm not mistaken, at the Council of Trent. It becomes the authoritative text, okay, superseding even the authority that would be granted to the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, versions. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so one more little quote here. Elsewhere, Erasmus expressed regret that, quote, the charm of the Greek figure contained in poimene and poimene, which is a sheep and shepherd, is lost in translation. Says Erasmus, the author of the Vulgate had used owum, right, and which means the sheep, and postor, whereas a different choice of words, oila, this is the sheepfold actually, and opilio, would have duplicated the Greek figure and reproduced the sound effect. That's a really difficult needle to thread. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. But I mean, he's Erasmus. He's Erasmus. He can he's do Dr. it. Dr. Yeah. Amphibolus. Right, right. He so, can do that. So he makes, he makes um, um, Jerome look like a, a crusty old dean. In some spots, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, who can't help but admire Jerome's accomplishment? He, of course. He translated the whole Bible, the first one to do it in an authoritative way. But Erasmus launched the project of taking shots at Jerome. And for the rest of the 16th century, everyone else did as well. People like Beza and Castellio, you know, here we can we can fix Jerome a little bit. He's he's off the reservation. So again, Erasmus is he's laying eggs and other people are hatching them. Absolutely. That's the metaphor. Gotcha. So we gotta wrap it up here pretty soon, we do. don't we? We're up against it. Yep. So just maybe the the last concluding quote we want to get yeah. uh, from this. <clears throat> Erasmus, this comes from the conclusion of uh, Dr. Rummel's work. In a letter to the French humanist Germain de Brie, not, not the inventor of the cheese, I don't think. Um, okay, I got excited for a moment. Okay, <laughs> But yeah. cheese is coming up later in the episode, isn't it? It is, yes. Erasmus encouraged scholars in general to translate the classics. Among the authors he particularly recommended were Aristotle, Plato, Herodotus, Thucydides, and Plutarch. Erasmus was careful to add that existing translations should not deter scholars from trying their hand at a particular work. There was always room for improvement. And now we skip right here to the end. Despite the success of his compositions, page 136, Erasmus revealed fundamental misgivings about the task of translating. The process had inherent limitations. No matter how faithful and accurate, a translation could never take the place of the original or fully compensate a Latin reader Hmm. for his lack of Greek. Erasmus lamented the state of education that compelled him to provide translations. Now, here's the great optimism. You want to read this last portion here where you see this kind of Erasmian optimism breaking out? How fortunate is our generation in which we see Greek coming to life again everywhere. The neglect of Greek brought with it the universal decay of all sound learning and all elegant authors. We may hope that equally its revival will make them flourish too. Yeah. What do you think? That's very nice. It is nice, but... I don't know if that optimism that eventually enough people would know Greek that uh, we would no longer need translations. Any educated person would be able to read the Greek or Latin directly. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's ever really happened. Never happened. But it's a it's um it's a counterbalance to kind of his kind of his his grumpy personality that we've been that we've been uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, you know 
skirting around throughout right. this episode. I mean, I found one interesting detail about his life is that he uh, um, he he apparently took as a personal motto, motto, Latin motto, "Concedo nulli," I mm. yield, I yield to no one. Yeah, uh, that's like the Tom Petty song, right? Wh- which one? I won't back down. I won't back down. Do you like that as a translation I, of "I won't back down"? I like that. Concedo nulli. Exactly. Like, so you know, he's he's saying yeah, and it was kind of like you know. It, I'll poke my finger in anyone's eye. Exactly. And I'm, I'm not going to. But this is very, this is very kind of like looking towards the future. Absolutely. And you were also saying that, um, you know, he was saying that, uh, you know, don't let a, a bad translation stop you. This should encourage you to go on and try it yourself. And Absolutely. So, so there was that element to him as well. That was, yes. that was uh, um, more generous. Right. Yeah. So are we with Dr. Amphibolus or Dr. Hyperbolicus? Um. See, I, I got to go with Amphibolus. You got to go with Amphibolus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, some have translated that as a slippery eel. Oh, which one? Amphibolus? Amphibolus. That's nice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my daughter, uh, for some reason, is fascinated with Erasmus. Really? Yes. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. She likes to read um, stories about Erasmus and so forth. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, is, is it true, Dad, that um, Erasmus was a slippery eel? <laughs> You know, uh, I'm still working on that. Still, <laughs> still, I'm still working through that. Yeah. Still trying to figure that out. All right. Well, we got to get out of here. But before we do, um, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Moss method, would you? Yes, I'd love to. So if you're thinking, you know, that Erasmus, he knew some Greek. I should learn some Greek so I can read these things too. That's a good thought. You should focus on that, I would say. Go to mossmethod.com. Uh, a rolling moss gathers much Greek, mm-hmm. I like to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, check out the program I've developed to take you from uh, Neophyte. To erudite. Thank you very much, Dr. Winkle. Mm-hmm. For $299, you will get my 40 lessons, my 40, those are video lessons, 25 hours of Greek instruction. You get 40 uh, assignments, six quizzes, two exams. There's really no reason not to know Greek after you launch into it this way. And there's some there's some free stuff on, on the website oh, as well, Oh, tons right? of free stuff. Okay. Lots and lots of Greek lessons I've thrown You're like Hackett, there. just giving it away. Well, I'm, not, I'm no Hackett, let's okay, say. All right, all right. I'm all right. doing what I can. All right. Thanks to Hackett, I can continue to do it. Excellent. 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 All right. Um, so uh, we got to thank some people. Definitely. Uh, Mishka, our editor, as always. Uh, Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin for the great music. The great music. We got Agricola here in the studio. As, as, on top of things, as the always. The good comments, the lighting, the videography. Check out the YouTubes, right? Yeah, of course. Yes. You, you can look at, you search under Ad Nauseam. Don't forget yes. the V. YouTube.com slash Ad Nauseam. Yep. And you can watch uh, the video version. I think we got, what, about seven episodes, yeah. eight episodes up now? Yeah, we're building, slowly building it up. Absolutely. Yep. If you would like to subscribe to the channel, either the YouTube channel or maybe on Spotify or Apple iTunes. We would really appreciate that. Leave a review. Leave a review. You can now review us on Spotify. You can send hate mail to Jeff. <laughs> something I recommend. Uh, send it to Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. And if you want to talk about uh, above ground pools with Dave, just uh, <laughs> jot a note to Dave at ad nauseum.com. Come on in. The yes. The water's fine. That's right. So what do we have for next week, Jeff? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. We, we, we were kind of Bouncing around a couple of ideas. Yes, it, we were. Where are we where are we leaning for next week? Any? Well, uh, we're going to have to see. I guess it's going to be TBD. Okay. Right? To be determined. It, it can't be to TBA because if it was D, we would A, right? Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we we're bouncing around some ideas. Right. Uh, they're both exciting. We just got to land on one. That's right. Yep. Got to come to rest. And I believe Jeff, you have the gustatory parting shot that yes. promised cheese. Yeah. Go ahead. But this is uh, this is from one Alyssa Nutting uh, from a book called Made for Love, and she writes: "Melted cheese is a culinary veil, <laughs> a foxhole where mediocrity can hide." Uh, that describes my nachos. <laughs> oh, that's no gouda. No, that's no gouda. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.